0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond, and today, Good faith, fam. We have one of my uh, my actual heroes, uh, someone who changed the way literally millions of people think about the world, whether through his teaching, podcasting, rap video producing, and honestly, just the quiet, humble model of a life well and purposefully lived. Uh, he's the host of probably the most interesting podcast, pound for pound, in the history of the medium, Econ Talk on economics, culture, and much more. Uh, He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he's now the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem. He's the man, the myth, the legend. Russ Roberts is here with us, and we're going to talk about journeys. So let's just set the stage very briefly. I think people tend to think of the Bible as as like an origin point, sort of the first word in history. And there's truth to this. I mean, you could think of the ancient Jewish tradition, thousands of years old, that God looked in the Bible as a guide, as it were, to creating the world. Or you can think of Aquinas comparing God's eternal laws to a blueprint from which the universe was created. But if you think about it from a narrative standpoint, the Bible actually begins not in the beginning, but in the middle. I mean, sure, the Bible has a creation story. It has a cosmology, but its primary story, the story of the Israelites, is a story that begins in media rest, like smack in the middle of history with two journeys, Abraham and Sarah's journey out of Mesopotamia in the book of Genesis and the Israelites journey out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. So the Bible, in other words, really, truly begins with the desire to be different, with the aspiration to be better. And remember, Mesopotamia and Egypt were the ancient world's two greatest centers of power, wealth, and culture. They were the establishment. This was home to the first empire in human history, Mesopotamia, and Egypt as well. And it's precisely here that the Bible picks up the story, not with God insisting that his creatures stand around in awe, seeing the created world is perfect, but rather with God encouraging his people to feel a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense that if they apply their minds and souls, they might be able to create something better, something lovelier, something more virtuous. And all they need to do in order to do that, be willing to take a journey into the unknown, perhaps to a land that I'll show you, to borrow a phrase, but that you haven't seen yet, but doing so hopefully and humbly. Now, Look, nowadays, we live in a generation that seems to have given up on great journeys. And there are different ways to diagnose the problem. Tyler Cowen has written about complacency. Ross Dowfit has lamented the onset of decadence. Fukuyama warned about the end of history. And thinkers like Rousseau and Tocqueville foresaw this even earlier, not to mention the book of Deuteronomy. But while it's extremely important to be able to diagnose the problem, I'm actually even more interested In thinking about how to solve it. And in particular, I'm deeply interested in those who in an age of complacency are willing once again to take great new journeys to embark on great new adventures. And my guest today is one such person. Uh, a person who picked up his life uh, here in America as a professor at a major university, a great area of the country, and moved himself across an ocean to take over a college in a foreign land, and in this case, the land of Israel. So without further ado, I'm beyond excited to welcome aboard the host of Econ Talk, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, president of Shalem College. He is Russ Roberts. Russ, thank you so much for
1: being here. Well, it's great to be with you, Ari. I have to say, though, that if I try to be a humble person, you're making it a lot harder for me. Those very kind words, (laughs) a little bit of hyperbole there, but but much appreciated.
0: A teacher of mine once used to say, you'll need atonement on Yom Kippur for exaggerating and I'll need atonement for enjoying it. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) I like that. I want to start sort of right there, which is, like I said... Professor of economics, major university, a really well-known economics department, research fellow, all the trappings of a life that should just kind of be in its final stages, not in a physical sense, but just as in a completed project. Like this is a this would be a great project for a for a well long lived life. And yet it's precisely at this point that you sort of pick yourself up and move yourself to Israel of all places. So what's the thinking? What's the story?
1: So I just have to make a small correction or maybe a large one. I'm I'm not I wasn't and I'm not a professor of economics at Stanford in a way that that even makes the story better because I wasn't teaching. I was just merely a fellow at the Hoover Institution where I had the freedom to work on whatever interested me, whether it was essays, books, podcasts and so on. And um, I was actually living outside of Washington, D.C. in suburban Maryland. But I visited Stanford in Palo Alto for the summer for 17 years. So it was very pleasant. I loved my job. So if anything, in a way better situation. (laughs) In a way, you know, I I happen to love to teach, but I teach in all kinds of different ways now outside the classroom. So, you know, I I used to joke, I have the best job in the world, that freedom. And when I was out there, I, you know, I had wonderful colleagues and it's a lovely place, but uh, I took the job. And the reason I took it was that it felt like the right thing to do. It, it felt like a calling. If you've been an econ talk listener, you know that my interest in formal economics has dwindled over the years. I'm increasingly interested in philosophy. I'm increasingly interested in education. And Shalem College is a startup. It's eight years old, started in 2013, with a very strange and, to me, wonderful vision of what education can and should be. I, You know, it's sometimes called a liberal arts education. I, I find that not my favorite phrase. I think most people don't know what that means exactly. They either think it means politically liberal, or it has something to do with sculpture, because it's got arts and painting or something. (laughs) But it's actually what I think of as real education, meaning you grapple and struggle to understand the deepest ideas and the hardest questions of Western civilization. And in the case of Shalem, we also look at Jewish thought in not in a religious manner, but in a way of what can I learn from this to live my life well? And we focus on the life well lived and the life that our students will live as citizens of the Jewish state and contribute to it as leaders. So it's a very ambitious project. It's crazy. We have no revenue. We charge tuition, but we give our students a stipend large enough to cover that and some more. We're small. It's 50 students each year. We have two majors, (laughs) which is a small number compared to most alternatives. One of those is philosophy and Jewish thought, which you extends the much of what they've been studying in the core curriculum I was alluding to earlier with the idea of the great texts and tough questions. They also can study Middle Eastern and Islamic studies, which they learn Arabic. They're fluent in Arabic when they leave that program. We're adding two majors, strategy, diplomacy, and war and economics. But it's a very unusual place, and it's a contrarian place. There's nothing woke about it. There's nothing apologetic about the fact that we expect our students to fearlessly engage in open inquiry with each other and talk about these questions and whatever answers they bring to the table without apology. So It's a glorious place, and when I was asked to be president, I wasn't interested, but to apply, I wasn't interested, and when I was offered the job, by that time, and I'd done my homework and talked to the faculty here and the leadership team and the students and the staff, and I realized this is where I belong, and so our original plan, my wife and I, we planned to... you know, rent out her house, store our stuff, and, you know, come to Israel on an A-1 visa. And after thinking about it a little bit longer, we made Aliyah, we sold her house. <laughs> our stuff's still in storage. We'll get it here sooner than, than later, we hope. But it's a bit of a leap. And, and I'll say, having visited Israel, you know, a dozen times as a tourist, coming here as a citizen is different and in ways that I didn't expect, didn't anticipate. And uh, it's been a big adventure for the first five months. That's how long I've been here. So what is it like teaching the humanities in a
0: country that doesn't yet have like a widespread tradition of studying the humanities in a focused way?
1: Now, you can study the humanities at Hebrew University. It's a first-rate place. You can study history. You can study literature. You can study philosophy. uh, You can study political science. What we try to do here is a little bit different. I think of us as a small-batch brewery we are small, so we don't have big lectures. We have more discussion than lecture, we hope, in those core curriculum classes. We're trying to let a small group of students learn how to work together to understand something that they're reading as a group, and in doing so, learn how to think deeply, how to read, how to write, and a special skill that's rare in 2021, how to listen, how to be respectful of a person on the other side of the table who doesn't see the questions the way you do. And so that's what I think is different about the humanities here. First of all, we don't, you know, major in history. You can major in philosophy and sort of kind of broad as the humanities. But, you know, I think the related question is Israel is the startup nation with an incredible emphasis on STEM, on science, technology, engineering, and math. And I think the other thing that makes us special is that I have tremendous respect for those fields, of course, and they've changed our lives in mostly, but not all, mostly good ways over the last 50 years in the world. The world's changed dramatically. It remains very dynamic. We don't know exactly how technology is going to continue to evolve. But I think it's pretty clear to a thoughtful person that you can't just get by with those things. You need to have somebody thinking about other deeper questions. As one venture capitalist here in Israel said to me, who was in the high-tech investments, he said, technology is really good at the how. You know, you give technology people, you give engineers a goal, you, you want them to achieve something, they'll figure out how to get there. But what about the what? What should we be working on? What's important? should this be a goal? Those are the questions that we hope our students can think about in in their role as future citizens and leaders of, of the Jewish state. And I think, if anything, the humanities are more important than ever. They're in disarray in the United States. They're in disrepair. And I think that's a tragedy. Fundamentally, the people who teach in those fields, I feel, have given up the game. They've abdicated what they have to contribute to our understanding and to society as a whole. And uh, here at Shalem, we try to do it differently. We actually believe that philosophy is valuable to study. We actually believe that reading the great books and thinking about those great questions in both Jewish and Western thought are, are a good purpose and a mission worth uh, championing. So speaking of of what and why driven uh, venture
0: capitalists in Israel, so we actually had uh, Mike Eisenberg on the program a couple weeks back. And one of the things that he got me thinking about, we actually talked about it a little bit, is successful pronatalism, right? Creating a policy environment that encourages childbearing and, and having children is kind of like the holy grail now from a policy and culture perspective. It's really hard to do, but Israel seems somehow to have cracked it. Its birth rates not just for religious folks, but for secular ones as well is well above replacement. And on top of all that, Israel's also a tech powerhouse, as you were just talking about, it's relatively wealthy. And like where else do you find that? Maybe India's on its way there, maybe maybe Nigeria, but for now it's pretty rare. So what's the secret now that you've been on the ground? What, what are your kind of first impressions?
1: You mean for five months? Well, that's a tough one.
0: <laughs> well, Ameri- American Jews are fond of opining
1: on Israel if they haven't even been there for five minutes. So you're like a long timer. <laughs> you're right. I'm a veteran. I want to emphasize the importance of, what, of the observation. I, I think there are policy things in place here. I'm told that when you exit the hospital, you get a check physically, as opposed to in the United States, you do get a tax deduction. So Israel does literally subsidize children. I don't know how large that check is. I also want to add, by the way, another crazy thing about Israel: or the United States. You are not allowed to teach your own child how to drive a car. You have to hire the official driving instructors. Uh, I don't know if that's a rent-seeking <laughs> thing from the driver instructor lobby or what's going on there. But you know, that was a real rite of passage for me as a as a dad. I was teaching my four kids how to drive in the you know in the parking lot of a, a local high school. So those two things are are very different in Israel than, than in the United States. But the point about children, I think, that's important is that Israel has a lot of kids, as you point out, both religious and secular families, but it's not just that they have a lot of kids. Family is important here, and I think that's, a in a way, you can say, yeah, 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 that's what I meant, but it's not exactly the same. Uh, I think there's a difference. It's very common in Israel that employees who are women go home earlier in the day and, and work at night. Whether you like that or not, whether you think that's right or moral or an ideal doesn't matter, it's a common phenomenon here it's just different those women want to be home when their kids get home from school for whatever reason. I think it's a good reason, but that's what happens here. And then they work at, a lot of them work at night uh, after their kids have gone to bed. That just doesn't happen so much in the United States. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's not as common. There are all kinds of things like that. And when you just walk around here, you see so many more children out and about. And I'm thinking when I first got here, am I in Utah? Which is famously um, a family-oriented state. I've thought, am I in Israel when I've been in Utah? Yeah. <laughs> of course, same problem. Same phenomenon. So I think it's it's a true statement. The question is, and, and very a profoundly different culture here than in Israel, than in the United States. Although, again, their pockets obviously, in the United States are very family-oriented and family particular people, particularly. Uh, just you know, it's generalization. But the question is, why? You know, what's different here? You know, there's an incredible book out by uh, Micha Goodman. Micah Goodman in his in the English version called The Wandering Jew. A great title. I actually have. I'm not sure I still have it. I used to have the Twitter account, uh, Wandering Jew, and I just never did anything with it. But I I love that name. It's a takeoff. on, of course, the Wandering Jew. And in in that book, Mika Goodman points out that there's something happening below the surface here in Israel that most American Jews. I was certainly unaware of it before I came here, which is a respect for Jewish text and tradition among the non-religious and an interest in exploring Judaism without a divine element, which is a little bit weird, not my usual way of thinking of things. It's a cultural phenomenon here. You know, I like to think that has something to do with the family size. It's obviously cultural. It's not financial. It's not economics in action so much as it is culture. What's different about this culture here that has that family orientation? The other thing, I'm not sure, but the other thing I'll point out is that I think for most American Jews, they think Israel is like America, but the Hebrew that's spoken is better with a different kind of accent. That's not true. Israel is in the Middle East. It is a Middle Eastern country. And when you're dealing with all kinds of things here, from economic transactions to interactions of of social connection, it's not the same as the United States. And that's one of the things you learn very quickly when you arrive here. There's some great things about that and some challenging things about that that you're just—and part of it just is that, whoa, I'm not used to this. This is different. That includes negotiating with people over what you thought was a fixed price. It includes the expectations of the landlord-renter relationship. It includes your ability to lead your life in quiet privacy. Not so much privacy here. Very different. People are very happy to give you advice in line at the grocery about what you're buying the way they would with uh, a family member. And it is indeed a very family feeling place, not just the fact that there are a lot of families and families emphasize, but you do feel you're part of a big family with, you know, which allows a certain amount of bluntness that Israelis are famous for. And we've experienced it. And I think that cultural, I was going to say milieu, but that's such a pretentious word. I'll say environment. That cultural environment here is a part of the story. So I actually want to take
0: Take off right there. Adam Smith and Hayek both observed that we care more about ourselves and others or about our loved ones over people far away. So, Adam Smith has this wonderful image where, you know, we're more concerned about losing our own pinky finger than over, you know, thousands dead in China. The Hebrew Bible seems to make the same observation, right? It's a story about family, not humanity. It's a particular story, not a universal one. Like, Adam is a stand in for all human beings, but Abraham's really just some guy in a desert. It's not meant to represent all of humanity. And the premise in the Bible, too, seems to be that our ability to care about others diminishes the further out from yourself you go. But how would you compare the conclusions that Smith or Hayek on the one hand and the Bible on the other seem to draw from kind of that common observation?
1: I'm going to have to stand up and get on one foot to answer that because that's such a simple (laughs) question. It's a very deep, deep question and hard to answer In a short way, so let me take a crack at it. That's what this podcast is for. Let's do it. (laughs) No, that's a tough one. Fascinating question. First of all, I think there's a tension in Judaism between the particular and the universal that I think over time has been, has ebbed and flowed. My colleague here at Shalem, the chair of our philosophy and Jewish thought department, Menachem Kellner, has a really fascinating book just published called We Are Not Alone. It's a look at the Jewish perspective on non-Jews. He is a Maimonidean, and he's defending the Rambam's view that there's nothing different between a Jew and a Gentile. Abraham had a vision of God. Therefore, the Jews became the chosen people and the people who have an obligation to be a light unto the nations. But it could have been a different people, a different culture. Whereas... There's this wonderful midrash from the ninth century,
0: Pirke de Rabbi Eliezer, that posits that God chose Abraham via lottery, like it was just random,
1: which is an amazing image. That's fascinating. We could talk a lot about Abraham if you want. We'll come back to that. But my point is that in Kellner's story, which is really a fascinating book, by the way, it's it's $109 in hardcover, but you, the Kindle version is only 108 So, And I'm not kidding. <laughs> I mean, God willing, there'll be a paperback. But the idea of that book is what the book deals with, is the tension in Jewish thought that Ud Halevi had a different vision of, of the differences between Jews and non-Jews. And, and so, you know, part of what your question is demanding is do we intellectually at least bring the wagons in and, and stay insular and take care of our own? And that's the Bible's vision. That's the divine vision of how we become a light unto the nations. I think not, but you could make that argument and many people do on the behalf of, of that, that viewpoint. Just to take an example, uh, love your neighbors yourself which neighbor the one who goes to my shul or the one across town who's not maybe not even jewish so there's a strong universal element in the homage, in the text, I'm a big fan of the text. Certainly, over the centuries, there has been Ashkafic and other types of commentary that have narrowed that vision. And you can obviously make good arguments on on both sides. You can argue that aspiring to love all humanity as much as you care about yourself is an aspiration that, while difficult and maybe even alien to our nature, it's what we should strive for. Most of us struggle to care about the person who sits on the other side of the aisle on our shul. So, so it's it's not an easy task. I don't want to suggest it's minimal. Let me now bring in Hayek and, and Smith a little bit. Certainly Smith understood that as we went outside of our rings of intimacy, that we move past our close friends and family into wider to say acquaintances and then to literal strangers, we are incapable of caring as much as we move outward, just like you said. Hayek, in this uh, incredible passage in The Fatal Conceit, talks about how the natural desire to extend the family, which is where we all were raised, almost all of us, we were raised in a small band of tightly thrown together people in one small group. That's our family. We might have an extended family, but even at that point, it's relatively small. The idea that, well, that's a wonderful thing, the family, those, those emotional ties. And of course, If you're an EconTalk listener, you know I'd like to point this out. We don't usually as a parent sell off the last chicken leg to the kid who's the highest bidder. We say, so-and-so had one already, it's your turn. We divide the cookies equally. We might even socialize. So we're not just socialists of the family, as Walter Williams liked to point out, George Mason economist. We also subsidize losers often. If we have a child who's struggling athletically, we don't say, well, I'm going to invest in the talented one and let that kid not play sports. Well, and get that kid the lessons to get them a chance to feel that they matter, that their siblings respect them. And so in the family, it's socialism pretty much all the way down and more than social. You know, it's from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. And we're proud of that as good parents most of the time. You know, I like to tell the story of when my youngest son told me he had just gotten some baseball cards in a, in a trade with his older brother. I said, well, what was the trade? He showed me what he got. His older brother had exploited it. <laughs> He'd gotten a better deal because he knew that His younger brother didn't know who the players were. And the commissioner, that's me, vetoed that trade. And it wasn't a, you know, market transaction. And that's how Chris Paul ended up on the Clippers. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. And one of many like that even in sports basketball and elsewhere that they, they do occasionally veto trades because they're so un- uncompetitive but if you think about it our ethos or at least our my ethos as a free market economist is competition's good buyer beware the market can self-regulate often not always but often and we don't need the heavy hand of the top-down regulator vetoing this or that is unfair let people learn a lesson they'll become more responsible and of course as parents we do want our kids sometimes to learn a lesson and we don't correct every trade but the point is is that household interactions are, are not free market. Most parents don't want them to be. And what Hayek said, come back to Hayek, is that if you bring the marketplace into your family by selling off things, renting the bedroom to the kid who can pay the most for it uh, and charging them rent, you'll destroy the family because that level of intimacy works best without those kinds of transactional interactions. But if he said then, if you then try to extend that, the beauty of the family into the larger, what do you call macrocosm of, of society, it leads to tyranny and it leads to the depredations of, you know, the 20 century under communism and national socialism. It's a it's a bad model. So how do you now come back to your question? So Hayek and Smith are realists. You know, they're telling you the way the world is, saying that, you know, most people can't really work effectively extending their intimacy or non-transactional side beyond their immediate circle. Now Judaism aspires to something bigger than that. You know, Judaism says you know, even though the jubilee year is coming, make a loan anyway. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, which is not natural. There are many things that Judaism some demands of us that are not natural. They don't come naturally to us. They don't come to our self-interest. So I wouldn't then say, well, those are too hard. So we'll just have to assume that they don't apply to this, this and that. And of course, that particular one we've, we've struggled with. We've, we found a hatter for a way to, to deal with, say, the prohibition against interest what I was referring to, that we we say, we'll find a way halachic way around that because we don't want a society where people don't lend because they can lend to non-Jews and collect interest. That would be bad, so we'll make it level. The alternative, which the rabbis did not choose, was to say, this is awful. We have to encourage people to rise to the level that the Torah demands of them. And of course, being a rabbi is not easy. you got to often weigh reality against human shortcomings, and that's why a PSOC for one is not necessarily the same PSOC for somebody else, you know, a decision. Right, a legal decision. Yeah, a legal decision can be very different for two different people. Meaning a rabbi might give one answer to one person, a different answer to another person, because the rabbi has information about that second person that changes what's appropriate for them. So my, my point is that I, I think the tension you're talking about, about how we relate to the people around us and and how far our ability to empathize, say, and treat people in an empathetic and powerful way is limited. And Smith and Hayek understood that, and they were right. But the Torah is trying to teach us something about what we should be, not who we are. At least I like to think that.
0: You know, I think that it's actually a deeply Hayekian move, or maybe it's vice versa, but it's a deeply Hayekian move when the Hebrew Bible places very strict limits on how large the land of Israel is allowed to be.
1: That's interesting.
0: Right. The insight being that the political, cultural, social model of the family actually won't extend beyond a certain point. And if you try to extend it beyond a certain point, you're shading into imperialism, which will eventually shade into murder. So what's supposed to extend beyond the borders is not power, is not policy, but influence. That's a great point. That gets me thinking. So I had a a great teacher who once said, you can only read a book for the first time once, which I love. And the book of Genesis is my favorite example of that. Right. So. If you're reading the book of Genesis for the first time, no spoilers, you have no idea what's coming next. You'd think the whole thing is going to end in disaster. Like this is going to be Ned Stark losing his head. Spoilers for A Song of Ice and Fire. God creates the world only to destroy it. The Tower of Babel goes up and then comes crashing down. Isaac can't live with Ishmael. Jacob can't live with Esau. Jacob's own kids are just a mess. And you'd think we're headed for a tragic ending. But what seems to turn everything around is that siblings, Judah and Joseph, somehow figure out how to live together. So why is that the Turning point, And what's the lesson for society
1: there? Another one foot question. Um, ha- I mean, it's this week's. It's this week's parsha, the Torah reading for this week in the annual cycle, which is VaYigash, which is one of my favorite moments in the Bible and in, in the Book of Genesis. It's a tremendous cinematic moment. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, rags to riches—the first real rags to riches story, right? He's in prison. He's got no future. As you say, it looks like a the story's going to end badly. He somehow, despite an, a false accusation of uh, sexual harassment, manages to rise to be the viceroy of Pharaoh because he's got insight and he helps Pharaoh interpret his, his dreams. How that comes about is great narrative, amazing story. It's a screenwriter's dream. The whole thing, right? It is right. It's fabulous. It's and it, of course, is the beginnings of along with Homer of all the stories that we tell. There's only a handful of models, and, and many of them are told in the Bible. Some are told in Homer. Yeah, just yeah, they change the names. It's like
0: Brian Johnson from ACDC used to say, "We release the same album every couple of years just with a different cover." You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's good. i never heard that. So the amazing thing is that. Joseph finally now has the upper hand. He has a chance to take revenge on his brothers. He frames his younger brother, Benjamin, perhaps to get him back in his own house and not in the clutches of the the other brothers who he thinks are murderous, which are nearly murderous. So they're both the sons of the same mom. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen. And uh, Judah rises to the occasion. It's, it's his second moment of greatness, actually. His first moment of greatness is when he has a chance to kill Tamar. His daughter-in-law has disguised herself as a prostitute to have a child through his you know line of sons when Judah refuses to give any more sons to him after two of them have married her and died. So another crazy moment, you know, it just sort of seems to be stuck in there. It's probably not. But when he finds out that his, someone says, oh, your daughter-in-law has been, is pregnant, and he knows she's not married, so he has is going to have her killed. Tamar, very quietly, which is fascinating, gives Judah his staff, signet ring, and I think uh, one other thing. Yeah, like uh, the string around his neck, right? Yeah. And says one of the greatest lines, maybe my favorite line in the Bible, she says, Recognize these? Which is the same line that Judah has said to their father when he showed their father his favorite son's coat dipped in blood, soaked in blood. Judah says to his father with Joseph's colored coat, "Did you identify this, please? And so Jacob thinks his son has been killed. Judah have, has the tables turned on to him when his daughter-in-law says, do you recognize this? And he realizes, oh, that woman I slept with was a disguise as a prostitute was my daughter-in-law. I didn't realize it. She was in disguise and he should have killed her if he acted like most of the powerful men of history. He had her under his control. She was painful to him, a source of shame, embarrassment. And he said, "Um, my problem, not yours, and let her live. And of course, her child eventually becomes, through the generations, becomes uh, David. It's going to be the line that leads to the Messiah, according to Jewish tradition. So that's Judah. What a great moment. He has a second great moment with Joseph, where he, instead of letting his half-brother Benjamin be abducted by a this viceroy of the Pharaoh, and by the way, there's no conversation, not one reported conversation among the brothers, but whether Benjamin really stole the goblet <laughs> I just realized that this year he's framed right he's totally framed I've actually never noticed that that's amazing right me neither is' not it amazing like they all hang their heads, oh darn, we're going back to Egypt we're in trouble we told our dad we bring Benjamin back, and we made a mistake. I can't believe I've never noticed that that's true is that wild? Yeah. So Benjamin never says, hey, wait a minute, I didn't steal this. He doesn't say a word. The brothers don't accuse him of, of, like, what were you thinking? They just deal with it as a fact. It's the strangest thing. 34 years I've been reading this story. (laughs) That's crazy. I know. Me too. It's crazy. But anyway, the the more interesting thing is that, uh, again, it's irrelevant whether it's true or not because— in the ancient world and in much of the modern world, people with power do with people what they want. And so Joseph's going to take Benjamin. And uh, Judah says, you know, we got a dad, we made a promise to him and really got a he said, take me, put me in prison. It's an incredible moment of humility of, and of course, of family, as you point out, which is that even though Jacob has multiple wives, which leads to terrible, terrible things, Judah, who reasonably resents his father for not loving his mother as much as Joseph's mother, rises to the occasion and makes a sacrifice. And it's one of the great moments of human history, really. that It's only one other moment that I know that's like it, and that's when David confesses to Nathan when he's accused of killing uh, Uriah to have Batsheva. And again, accused could have said, arrest this man. Instead says, uh, I failed. I've done the wrong thing. So powerful leaders rarely do that in any situation. So both the humility of that, the elevation of family above ego, there is a profound and powerful lesson that you're pointing out there that redeems the story. Although there is this moment we have to concede. It's a terrible moment where after Jacob dies, the brothers say, uh, uh, you know, before he died, Dad said, Dad said, don't kill us. (laughs) That's not good. That is not good. You know, we don't have any record of that conversation between Jacob and and the other brothers. So presumably— They made that up because they were so afraid of their brother, who did have that power over him, and, you know, Joseph cries, and my interpretation of that is that neither they nor their brother really ever forgave themselves for what happened, and it haunted them. It discolored their relationship in some sense irrevocably. So we have to concede that. We're human. We make mistakes. We cope with them as best we can, and I think the book of Genesis is—that's what it's about. It's about, among other things, is about the— ability to overcome those self-centered things and elevate your family. So I actually want to
0: come back to Nathan for a moment, the prophet whom you mentioned, because Hebrew political philosophy has been deeply influential on the West. In many ways, it's been the model for Western kind of Republican thinking. It has a system of checks and balances. There's an executive and legislative and judicial branch. You're saying small R, small R Republican. I mean people live in a republic. Yeah. Yes, yes, a small, small our republic. Right. John John Milton, John Selden, some of the early kind of republican thinkers in the 17th century. But th- the most unusual a distinctive element of Hebrew political philosophy is the prophet. I've always wondered, like, how should we model this, right? They're randomly distributed, or at least they seem that way to us. Uh, they operate outside the system. There are no checks in, against them. So why would a political system want these, like, wild cards running around? What's the lesson there?
1: It's a great, another great question, Ari. Fantastic. I just want to put a plug in for a book that I love that I'd never heard of until 10 years ago or so, which is uh, God, Man, and History by Eliezer Berkovitz. If you're poorly educated Jew as I am. Oh, what hope is there for the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have a lot of holes in my in my knowledge, and one of them is the prophets. I've never read the prophets carefully. I think they get short shrift in many ways. Oh yeah, like like you said. Oh, those this crazy people. They got long beards. They're always yelling at the street corner. Nobody nobody's paying attention to them. It's a tough life, you know. The, Jonah is the exemplar of this. You know, he's humiliated. It's a thankless task. <laughs> so, what role do they play? You know, why are they important? They are unchecked. Uh, in theory, they are the voice of the good, the voice of God, the voice of conscience. In the ancient world, where else is that going to come from? Our natural impulse is to serve ourselves. As as we talked about earlier, we are self-interested. We're not necessarily selfish, but we're certainly self-interested. I think one of the amazing things about the Jewish system of asking a question of a rabbi, asking a A halachic decision. It's not so. I think a lot of people think that's because, oh, in theory, that's because the rabbis know more about what the law is supposed to be. Maybe part of it. But often it's because you, as the person asking the question, realize that your answer is tainted by your own desires, self interest, urges, and so on. And what you're really doing when you ask a question, a rabbinical question, you are seeking counsel. You're seeking outside counsel. You're seeking advice, what Adam Smith called the the impartial spectator a person who's not you, who doesn't have those natural self-interested motives and benefits and costs implicit in the decision that's about to be made. And what a profit does, if you think about it, we have a, uh, a king, which God counsels the Jewish people not to have, but they really won't want one. They want to be like their neighbors. And I don't know, it's, it's a kind of a, a sad moment in um, the Jewish people's relationship with God. But God says, yeah, okay, I'll give you one. You know, be careful what you ask for. And it doesn't turn out particularly well ever in Jewish history having a king. There are very few exceptions. There are few exceptions. It's like the evil genie moment. Like, you want a king? I'll give you a king. Yeah. Right. Let me t- let me open this bottle. Let me pull this right. cork out. You. <laughs> and this weird, there's a terrible odor in the room and there's, it, the lights go dim <laughs> and there's this demonic laughter. Anyway, if you're going to have that, if you're going to have something close to an autocrat, you talked about the, the power of checks and balances in a republic as opposed to, say, a monarchy. The monarchy has basically no checks and balances. And so you could argue that what the, the role of the prophet is to be the voice of conscience, the voice of the people in general. Now, in theory, a good king cares about the people as a whole, but most kings in history don't. They care a lot about themselves. And so to push back against that before there was a parliament or a Knesset or a congress— That's kind of the role of the prophet, to hold the leader's feet to the fire. Now, good talk, but the fact is, a lot of times the prophet's holding not the king's feet to the fire, but the people's feet to the fire, right? You've sinned. You're not kind enough to the widow, the orphan, and the poor. You've practiced idol worship. You haven't lived up to the spirit of the law. You may have kept the letter, but not the spirit. And I think it's a different way to deal with the role of the prophet. If you think about it, in most of Jewish history, Jewish ritual was not what we practice today as religious Jews, meaning uh, a lot of it centered around the temple, a lot of it centered around sacrifices, pilgrimages. Not temple like is in your synagogue, but around like the Jerusalem temple, right? Correct. I think it's hard for modern Jews to realize how alien daily life as Jew was Today compared to back then so what was supposed to make you a better person if I remember correctly you, you could tell me uh, until Ezra I'm not sure that there was a weekly Torah reading right that there was an annual right there's an annual idea of HaKel, where where the king once a year brings all the people to Jerusalem and he reads an excerpt from the Torah that's not the greatest character builder I mean I think it was nice for national unity and and a feeling that that we're one people. But, you know, what's reminding people to love their neighbors as themselves? There are no books. People don't have a lot of Torah scrolls laid around. The Torah itself, the thing that we think of as this great document of ethical monotheism and, and the Jewish people's story, it's not accessible.
0: Like It's interesting, in Ezra chapter nine, when he refers to the Sefer Torah, the book of the law, right, which we would normally think of in an abstract sense as like a corpus, like a text that there are copies of, he's actually referring to a specific ritual object that he takes out
1: of the temple in that case. <laughs> exactly, a scroll. It's, it's not on a bookshelf, and there isn't a hundred copies when you walk into synagogue to pull off and, and follow along as, as somebody reads it and to learn from. And there are not a lot of shurim. There are not a lot of classes of people sitting around, what is the meaning of this? And there's no Muser movement, and there's no Hasidic movement yet to encourage all kinds of things that, that are out there. So the prophets must have played a very powerful role in encouraging people to both do the right thing and encouraging kings to remind them that they're mortal, that they're human beings and not God.
0: So, last question about kind of Jewish political thought. So, if I think of moments in history where Jewish thought has had the most influence, so it's been times when Jewish thought has had an advantage in explaining, interpreting, and helping leverage kind of the socio-political or cultural conditions of the time. So like the late 16th century is a time where scientific thinkers are attempting to think about the world in an orderly way. And also they're deeply curious about mysterious things like alchemy and witchcraft. And it's like this harmony between law and mysticism that Jewishness fits and explains to a T. So you have figures like Newton, Henry Moore, Paracelsus, they're like super drawn to Judaism. 17th century, you know, politics, like we talked about a moment ago, you know, politics is looking for intellectual precedent in translating ancient texts into political action. So again, Jewish thought is really influential for John Milton, Salmasius, John Seldon, and other kind of small-R Republican thinkers. So what about the coming generation, right? So the era of Crypto, Web3, right? Isn't Judaism in a certain sense really just an incredibly intricate, complex, like DAO, like a decentralized autonomous organization, right? It's It doesn't have a, a papacy. It's kind of transnational, uh, but at the same time, it believes in community. Is this kind of like a moment for Judaism in the coming generation?
1: Yeah, you know, I stopped making predictions after COVID and really after the financial crisis of 2008 when I realized my crystal ball was really not that reliable. It's a very interesting thought to think about whether Judaism is well positioned as a cultural meme of sorts that would attract people in a way it, it hasn't in the past. Let me t- take a different approach. I think the world is incredibly unmoored right now. I think people are struggling. It's a nice thought that Judaism will have this powerful draw for young people, but religion as a whole is certainly not doing well. There's basically a incredible tumbling in the reduction in the level of religious interest in the part of young people in the last 25 years across the religions, not just Judaism. I don't know how Judaism stacks up against that, but certainly Christianity is struggling to attract people to regular church attendance. I'm worried about the future of the synagogue. I think the future of the synagogue's in trouble, partly because I think faith is challenging in 2021. And if you don't get married, and increasingly people don't get married, or they marry late, their interest in synagogue life, that kind of communal life is very low. So there's a lot of Jewish activity going on, people doing some innovative things. But I'm not optimistic about the future of standard communal Judaism. It's been practiced over the last 50 years. I think it's uncertain. But having said that, suicide rate among young people's way up murder rate is high in america's cities drug overdose hundred thousand people i think died of drug overdose last year it's three times roughly the number of people died in a car accident that's a sign of the fraying of the social fabric in those times people do turn to there is a bit of a pendulum and i think people may turn back to religion in search of meaning in search of belonging in search of something larger than themselves and in many ways, I think some of the malaise that's in America right now that, that I'm alluding to in this very, very simple summary of the data is a feeling of not belonging, a feeling of not mattering, a feeling of being unimportant. You know, I've written a piece, uh, The Lonely Man with a Gun. I think, you know, a lot of the the terrible mass shootings that have plagued, to some extent, plagued America over the last 10 years. It's always a lonely man with a gun, almost always. There's, there's a few exceptions, but it's a lonely man. And we focus on the gun. Oh, we got to do something about the guns, too many guns. we got to think about the lonely man. Something has gone wrong, and whether it's literally with men, I don't think it's irrelevant that many men struggle to find meaningful work these days. We have a horrible education system in America. Uh, I say we—I still am an American citizen, by the way, but happily an Israeli citizen also. Something has gone wrong, I think. In, instead of worrying about gun laws, which reasonably people could disagree about what that should be— I, but I think we ought to be worrying about why people would ever think it's a good idea to go kill a bunch of people you don't know. For what? Notoriety, fame, meaning? It's something has gone wrong. So could religion be part of the answer for some people? Yeah, I think it could be. But our culture is, is you know, the anti-religious nature of popular culture is so strong. The urge of young people to belong and, and to be seen as right thinking, it's going to make it hard for that re- that rebirth. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some innovation in religion. Uh, I'm sure we're seeing it now. Part of that is the non-Synagogue aspect of institutional Jewish life. There are a lot of things being done in America's cities to look for alternatives to traditional synagogue life. I think that's probably going to grow. Whether it'll be a large movement, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thought.
0: So my last question is really about, about you and kind of my, at least my, my reception, I think many people's reception of you. One of the things that I've always really admired about your work is how kind of audio visual it is, right? So you're a real pioneer in the podcast medium and the podcast space. I think you're like one of the first podcasts I ever remember encountering. And it's a pretty early example of the, of the format. A lot of the innovative education that you've done has been through kind of like rap videos, Keynes versus Hayek. And one thing that kind of occurred to me as I was thinking about this was You're a thinker who kind of emerges. I mean, I think people think of you as an economist, but you're a thinker that's really emerged from tradition, namely Judaism, that puts deep and strong emphasis on orality, on storytelling, on kind of the audio element of learning. So is that something that you've ever thought about? kind of that that kind of ties podcasting rap videos your your emphasis on stories over data right on priors over empiricism is that something that ties that all together the fact that you kind of emerge from an oral tradition as it were it's
1: a very clever Ari. <laughs> very clever idea I don't know if it's true it's fun to think about uh it is called the Shema
0: right hero Israel
1: hero Israel not loco Israel the Jewish people did not see God at Mount Sinai they heard God I I, I think for me I mean when I think about what I do in um, outside of President Shalom, which now is actually remarkably close to a more than full-time job. So <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling to keep up the rest of my activities, but I am doing Econ Talk still. I did start in 2006, which was early days. I wasn't the first, but it was early days. I think the storytelling is, is at the heart of everything I do. My dad, who passed away about two years ago, told me while he was alive what he wanted on his tombstone. And it was... His heart was full of stories. Wow. He wrote stories. He told stories. And when we were growing up, he never read a bedtime stories, ever. And the idea of reading a bedtime story, which I did every night for often all four kids, as did my wife, that was so alien to him. He would tell a story. He would make it up. He had all kinds of themes and characters. And, and my kids loved that. It was very special to them. But I think the Jewish people are full of stories, right? Our, our book, The Jewish Bible... Is a story. There's a wonderful book by Yoram Zoni, um, "The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture," which tries to make the argument quite effectively that the Jewish Bible is a work of philosophy told in the form of a story, and that that's not so weird. It's weird to us in 2021. It wasn't weird when it when it when it came out and <laughs> it was published when the single dropped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rabbi Sachs, Jonathan Sachs, uh, wrote eloquently about the Jewish story, our role as Jews in com- completing being a character in, et cetera. But it's not a Jewish theme alone. I mean, human beings, I think we learn through stories. We enjoy and laugh and cry through stories. And um, there was some point in my life when I realized that storytelling is a powerful way to teach. And so you know, I've written novels. I've written poems. And I think that's the way we remember most things. It's the way we internalize many things more than just Education. It's about what's in our bones. So I think it's underrated, actually. In, in in certain ways, it's a funny thing to say, but certainly there haven't been that many economic stories told in economics. And uh, stories are powerful. Stories are what make our hearts sing. And it's how we're made as human beings i think to to experience the world so some of it's listening but you start out by saying audiovisual you know in the modern world storytelling is told visually people don't read as much they do listen a lot which is fascinating actually right radio gets killed off almost entirely by television right in the early days of radio radio is the storytelling medium it's the shadow and its other serials that that make people and TV comes along and it's like, no, oh, this is easier and, and a lot more vivid, and I'll stop listening to those stories. And radio becomes this different medium for music and for news and for traffic and so on. And now we're in the golden age of audio again. The podcast is, and especially the serial podcast. Mine, you know, mine doesn't do this, but the podcasts that tell a long form story, just like we have these audio, these visual stories on Netflix, these series that like Stiesel and Game of Thrones and others that, you know, that that become part of our lives in a certain way, that that ripple through our culture in ways that were just not possible 25 years ago. And they're gloriously told visually, so many of them. You know, I think we're in the golden age of audio storytelling through podcasts, and we're in the golden age of visual storytelling through series on the internet. And it's a great time to be a storyteller, and it's a great time to be a listener to stories or a viewer. So... Kind of a one of the best things about modern life, as far as I feel.
0: Amen. Everyone, uh, go subscribe to Econ Talk. Listen to Econ Talk. There, they're over seven hundred. I mean, you can look in the archives. Eight hundred. Eight hundred now, unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another hundred, give or take. So uh, go check out the archives. They're amazing. Check out Shalem College and Russ. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be with you. A great conversation. Loved it. You know, after the pod ended, Russ and I ended up sticking around for a while just nerding out over (laughs) Biblical interpretation, and one of the things you realize when you do that is just how crazy, how metal, how punk rock the stories of the Bible are. I mean, you have Yael and Sisera in the book of Judges chapter 4, which, like, the logline for that one would be, it's beauty and the beast, but if Belle murdered Gaston, or you have the story of the concubine of Gibeah beginning in Judges 19 and the subsequent civil war that follows. I mean, that story is way more intense than anything that happens on The Sopranos or Game of Thrones. These are powerful stories. And if we want to not only understand where we are as a society, but actually chart a path forward to greater familial, communal, societal flourishing, we would do well, as I've said on the pod so many times, to focus on the power, the redemptive power of story. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed this, then just please go ahead and be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, go into iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a rating, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. This is Ari Lam making a Good Faith Effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow SoulShop Shop on Twitter at SoulShopStudios Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios and check out soulshopstudios.com.